You're listening to the Creepy Kingdom Podcast Network, covering and creating all things creepy. Visit creepykingdom.com to get access to all of our articles, videos, and podcasts. Join our Patreon for exclusive content. Patreon.com slash creepykingdom. Now it is time to open up the gates. Creepy Kingdom proudly presents The Dark Theme Park Show. Alrighty. I would like to welcome back to the Creepy Kingdom Podcast Network voice artist and actor. I can't choose which one to pick because they're both relevant here. We have Kat Cressida joining us. Hello. Yes, thank you. I'm super excited to be here, and uh, obviously, we have a lot of a lot of deep Disney history and magic in store uh, for Disney fans in general, and of course, um, later on for the fans of the spookier attractions, the spookier Disney attractions. Um, but if it's okay with you, the former cast member and me just really wants to take a moment to just thank everybody for both being here and also for. It's just extraordinary efforts the past couple of weeks. Obviously, we're all dealing with a a new normal, and our heartfelt good wishes to anybody who's dealing with something um, a bit more serious. If, if you've got family or friends who are um, sort of in the thick of it, everybody's facing new realities. And on top of that, I wanted to send out a personal thank you, just if, if you have friends or family who are on the front lines, and anybody working in the fire departments or uh, hospitals, medical field, emergency services, just thank you so, so much to you and your and your loved ones for what they're doing to help us. So, so we'll get back to the Disney magic. Back when we had the uh, original Creepy Kingdom podcast, uh, you were uh, an early guest. So it's, uh, it's awesome to have you back. Um, geez, I think it's five years later. And, and actually, that was truthfully when I just started just started social media after remaining blissfully out of the swimming pool and sandbox for well while everybody else was jumping into it i was saying nope (laughs) so you were definitely one of my first ones one of my first ones as well i don't know if i was a virgin but almost a virgin almost well (laughs) we pulled you out of the the uh non-social media sandbox put you into the social media sandbox (laughs) and um yeah, we're glad to help, uh, you know, spread the word back then. And I think it's uh, very cool to come back so long later because just in general, um, I don't know, not too many podcasts really even last this long. <laughs> so, so it's cool to be able to bring you back and uh, take a look back a little bit. Um, but we've brought you on for a very uh, special series of podcasts. Um, this is uh, part one of two, so very excited to dive into uh, t- two different areas of your life. But you have some um, information, which we're going to tease a little more as we get going, that certain fans of a spooky old house might want to know about. <laughs> I'll bet they will. <laughs> but before we jump to that, um, you know, just to bring other people to speed that may not be familiar with your body of work... Um, what are some of the uh, uh, characters that you've uh, done, some of the more well-known characters that you've pr- provided th- your voice to? Well, James, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, no, uh, I've been very fortunate over my uh, – It's, it's I, I can't believe – someone asked me the other day, how long have you been doing voiceover? And I was astonished to say over 20 – Five years now. Well, just about 25 years, years now, wow. which is unbelievable to me because uh, <laughs> um, I started way back um, as I was transitioning. I was still in on camera, doing a lot of on camera and um, had had the good fortune of doing a TV series with a very famous actor to the sci-fi uh, to site. What was that? Did you hear that? Uh, must have been a ghost. Specter. It was a Skypeism. Right. Oh, I didn't and hear it on my end, but we're good. <laughs> there's a very famous um, sci-fi 
sci-fi icon legend Michael York, who played Logan in Logan's Run. Oh, wow. He, of course, was a very famous Shakespeare actor back in the day. He was a heartthrob during the 70s and 80s. And I had the good fortune of being cast opposite him in a series with Taya Leone (laughs) for NBC, for must-see TV, back uh, in the late 90s. And he was the one who actually said to me, wow, you've trained in Shakespeare, you love words, you're fascinated with storytelling, you love Disney, maybe you should consider voiceover. Um, And at that point, yeah, this was in the late 90s, it was not nearly as well-known. Celebrities were not yet really doing it um tom hanks was the first major you know celebrity on record to associate himself with an animated project and back when he started that for pixar most people don't remember this but he wasn't yet tom hanks the academy award winning he was still just doing small comedies so yeah yeah, he was like the 80s comedy guy yeah 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 so and and not even some of his more significant well-known ones so he kind of changed the conversation on that, uh, him and Tim Allen. And that was right around the time that I was just starting in voiceover. So it was a very different world. And long story short, I first started out doing a bunch of video games for LucasArts. And so my first big role was voice matching Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Was that intimidating or what? (laughs) Not really. I, you know, the great thing about being young and stupid is that you're young and stupid and (laughs) sort of take it all in and stride and go, yeah, this is, I mean, it was, it was a big deal. I mean, I definitely felt the honor of taking on this role and I studied it like a demon. I mean, I really put my all into the voice match and worked hours and hours and hours. So I definitely felt the honor of uh, taking on such a legendary role. Um, of course, all the new Star Wars hadn't yet even. Oh, yeah. If, as far as we knew, that was it. Those those right. three original trilogy. But I studied for hours and hours and hours about every ism, every tone, every pitch, every way that she shaped her mouth. Voice matching is a whole other skill set that I've been very fortunate to uh, to, to be a part of. Um, so anyway, that was my first major role. And then shortly after that, um, in terms of major stuff that, mm-hmm. that anybody would necessarily care about, uh, was Dexter's laboratory that came shortly after that. And then, um, from there I ended up dabbling with Disney character voices. Well, actually, I'd like to actually pause a little bit on, on talk about Dexter's laboratory. Cause I'm sure we didn't talk about it last time. Uh, so you provided the voice of Dee Dee, which I have to say, um, is just the polar opposite of your speaking voice. (laughs) Dee Dee's just so over the top, (laughs) (laughs) you know, how did you land that, that role? You know, (laughs) it's a great question. I actually, that started out as a voice match because the gal who had done it for the pilot was the creators this this was a CalArts finals thesis. I don't know if a lot of people out there know that, but Gendy Tartakovsky, who's the brilliant creator, who's of course gone on to do tons of things, including ironically star, some Star Wars stuff. Um, he uh, was a CalArts student, and his thesis was the pilot of Dexter's Laboratory. Wow, I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, and so all the original voices for the original, original concept pilot were just students. Uh, I think he did, I think he did Dexter and his girlfriend at the time uh, did Dee Dee. And then when it got picked up for Cartoon Cartoon as part of Hanna-Barbera's um, collaboration with the brand new Cartoon Network, uh, they, re- they redid the pilot um, and she stayed in the role for the pilot. And then they cast Chris Cavanaugh, amazing, wonderful, God rest her soul, Chris Cavanaugh, who, of course, was the voice of Babe and several Rugrats and other famous Nickelodeon characters. Mm-hmm. She got cast as Dexter, which was a genius move. And they got about three episodes in, two and a half, three episodes in to their six episode pickup. 
and the gal who was doing Dee Dee decided that she didn't want to, she voiceover wasn't what she had gone to CalArts for. She wanted to be a, a stage actress, so she left. And so they had to find a voice match because the series was already becoming a major hit at that point. It was getting major traction and had another pickup for an additional, I don't know, 26 or however many other episodes. Wow. So it started out as a voice match, but for those who are avid, avid Dexter's Laboratory fans who really know it, they'll note that somewhere around the fourth episode, you know, you hear a slightly different sound which is me taking over the role. And then as very quickly, as soon as I took it over, Gendy made the decision that he wanted to take the character even wackier and more out there. I describe her as Alice in Wonderland on crack. <laughs> That's yeah. a perfect, perfect yeah. explanation. Yeah. He just kept pushing the boundaries. That laugh, her famous laugh was mm. mine. And everything got exaggerated and pushed out because she, she started out much more mellow. Really? And wow. Airy fairy hippie is what she sounded like in the first. Really? Wow. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that then. <laughs> wow. But yeah. And then, uh, and then it was all me pretty much from, from then on out, uh, for the most part. And I've continued to do that character on and off for various, you know, additional projects. But I'm so glad you said out loud that it sounds nothing like me. Cause it always really, annoys me slightly when someone says oh yeah you of course of course i can totally hear it in your voice i'm like really <laughs> i i can't i'm not gonna <laughs> lie <laughs> i really can't hear it <laughs> yeah so uh crazy characters seem to be my wheelhouse i seem to get a lot of axe wielding i've i've now portrayed three famous axe wielding murderesses Two in video games and one for the mansion. So there's something in my voice that definitely seems to fit into that. But who knows what it is? Because I started out doing all lighthearted Disney-esque stuff. <laughs> and Princess Leia. Right. You started with Princess Leia. Which, <laughs> and went to, I mean, you went from Princess Leia to Dee Dee in, in a short run of time. That, that's a spectrum right there. <laughs> there yeah. But yeah. Uh, I'm glad to be able to nerd out a little bit on that i I loved watching dexter's laboratory and i i loved dd when the show was on <laughs> so i just yeah. I, I love I mean, alice wonderland on crack is is a great description of her character so um <laughs> so yeah. i'm glad that uh i'm glad that it went there that what she wasn't um i just don't think that dynamic would have lasted worked well throughout the series if she wasn't so over the top but. Yeah, well, that's true of any series is you start to find your you find your way through the characters. They evolve as, as you go. And then from just to get back to your original question, because sure. I know, of course, Mansion fans really want to get into the Disney universe and I don't blame them. Um, from there, uh, ended up dabbling with Disney character voices. My first real role for them was Tarzan, the animated feature Tarzan, where I got to voice match Glenn Close. Uh, mostly to take over all the gorilla sound effects for all the chase scenes for Kala, which was Tarzan's mom, hmm. which was a big honor, um, big fantasy fulfillment. People always picture when you do animation uh, that you're doing it to the actual, you know, that you're seeing it. And of course, now we know from B-rolls that have been spilled out from Disney and Pixar that, of course, that's not the case. You're just sort of in a recording booth recording it before the animation's even been done. But yeah. in that case, they had completely finished the movie. So I was at a giant ADR stage. I'll never forget this. And I was with the two the two directors. There were two directors on it. And um, literally had the honor of doing all of the gorilla sound effects to picture. Wow. So I got to see all the animation. And I was literally dubbing it in line by line, beat by beat to the final animated project. And that was just like surreal. It was like dream come true. Um, especially working directly with Chris Buck and, and the direct, you know, the directors. Mm -hmm. So that was magical. And then from there, shortly after that took over, um, the voice match for Jesse, the cowgirl. So every time, uh, wonderful Joan Cusack is not available. I get to step in. And that means I've done most of what you've heard in the toy story land, Disney parks, you know, Midway Mania, Disney on Ice, uh, Woody's Roundup, all the live stage shows, most of them. So, wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. So, you, 
So you're you're the stand-in for Joan, is what you're saying. I'm the official voice match for Jesse the Cowgirl. That's so yeah. cool. Uh, so you're um, in Toy Story Midway Mania. That mm-hmm. correct? Yep. Um, so I'd imagine was that the first attraction that you were part of? No, uh, back early, way earlier. God, what year? Someone else will know, but I got to do Woody's Roundup for the Golden Horseshoe. They had a full oh, stage. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I remember that show. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I put it out for Way Back Wednesdays a lot on Twitter because it's just so funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did that clever concept where every time it was supposed to be the TV show, all the characters and the scenery were in black and white. Yeah. And then for the commercial breaks, it was in color. <laughs> I, I literally loved that show. <laughs> I thought it was so awesome. I, I'm, I'm going to go with 90, uh, 99 in, in line with Toy Story 2 uh, coming out. I think that's when that show was. Could <laughs> uh, have been. Yeah. And that was a big honor. Uh, I'll never forget being in the audience and hearing my voice coming out of Jesse on stage. And I was like, Oh, this is just too surreal. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I was getting at. I was going to ask you about Midway Mania. I was literally going to ask you, what's it like hearing your voice like in a show or attraction? <laughs> it's always a bit. I mean, it does depend on the circumstances. But even driving my car, hearing me on a on a McDonald's commercial or something, there's always a moment of sur- surrealness because part of you, part of your innate DNA recognizes it that it's very familiar, mm-hmm. but it takes your brain a good five to 10 seconds to realize that is you because of course it always sounds a bit different after they've done their post-production. Sure. And how, how we hear our voice coming out of our skull cavity is different from how everybody else hears it. So that first moment of hearing with the room noise and the post-production and whatever else, it takes the brain a few moments to go, Hey, that's me. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I, um, I actually had a. Uh, I did a. a I could I did some voiceover work for a, a independent film, <laughs> and I had the same experience. Um, I had the honor of providing my voice in the film um, Walt's Frozen Head. I don't know if you've, have you've heard of this film. Nope. Yeah, it's an independent uh, film that that leads it if, if Walt Disney. You know, his head is still alive, and and he get, and he gets. They take it to the parks. And show him his park, and he comments on it, and it's you know it's a real fun film. Uh, and the, yeah, the director of the film he asked me to let uh, do voiceover uh, Paul Frees's part, which I was like, I'm not worthy for that at all. And then he's like, Well, please do it. I was like, Okay. So then when I watched the movie, I was like, Wow, who's that's a weird voice mansion voiceover. I was like, Oh, that's me. I don't. I'm like, I still feel like I'm not worthy, but it was a really cool experience to, <laughs> to be able to do it. Oh, well, wow, that sounds really cool. <laughs> Yeah, so it was really uh, – so that's why I thought to ask you. I was like, I wonder what it's like on going multiple times, going you know, to on attractions in the parks, you know, just hearing – you know, every time you go on Midway Mania, you know, <laughs> hearing your voice must be pretty surreal. Yeah, it, it is always. So let's, uh, let's rewind a little bit here and say that, you know, you ended up doing work uh, with Disney, but you've – you were brought into the Disney universe uh, at a very young age. I was, yes. Exceptionally early um, in terms of uh, understanding what went into the parks and uh, the backstories of so many of the classic attractions. Because as some of your amazing um, followers and, and fan base and homies may know, um, I grew up in the Imagineering culture. My father was not technically an Imagineer, but a graphic designer uh, who worked with uh, Imagineering and had several meetings down at the park when I was younger, several reasons to go down there. Back then, just to re- just to say this out loud, um, not sure of the age, you know, general age range of your, of your demographic, but this was during the early 70s. And this was sort of a, not to be unkind, but it was a lower point in terms of the parks. Um, Disney World, of course, was was just getting on its feet. Mm-hmm. Walt sadly had passed away, you know, just a few years earlier. And so a lot of the Imagineering culture and the parks were, the park was trying to find its balance, trying to find its way back and figure out 
you know, what the next iterations of it were going to be to follow Walt's dictum that the parks will never be completed, that they'll always move forward. And um, my father was very passionate about NASA and the space program, which made Tomorrowland his one of his absolute, you know, favorites to discuss and, and talk about. But even at the age of three and four, we would be standing on online and he would be sharing the backstory of the attractions, which mm. to me was perfectly natural because as a kid, you, you're like, well, this is what everybody does. <laughs> you don't know. It, it took years for me to realize that, no, most kids got their introduction to Disneyland just strictly as an audience member enjoying the magic and not having a discussion about how it all right. together. So I always viewed the park from that lens. I always viewed it from the point of view of the Imagineers and how much incredible magic went into the creation of the final illusions, which was an unusual way to come into it. Yeah, so, I can't. I I can't say I'm envious for. I I, I like having the magic going as long as possible. <laughs> oh no, this made it. I'm telling you, this made it even more magical hmm. because I got to realize, for me and my brain, it was extraordinary to see both the final product and know all of the secrets going into it. I found that incredible, and um, certainly the actor in me was able to to step back and enjoy the illusions and get lost in them, but. It was so cool to know some of the backstory about it as well. That, at least for me, I really enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the proverbial seeing Mickey Mouse without his head smoking a cigarette backstage. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was much more like, oh, so that's how the birds work. Wow, that's so cool. And then when you actually hear them, I had such a bigger appreciation for it. I didn't take it for granted. It was it was so much more magical to to me to know all of this incredible theatrics and, and the voiceover talent and the music and the post-production and the mechanics and the imagineering. It was, it was phenomenal. Um, it, it's probably why I stuck with uh, a true passion for the history and the trivia, because to me, it's so important that people understand all of the magic that went in to the final illusions to the final show. Yeah, I mean that, that definitely makes sense. I feel like as I became older and became uh, more of a hardcore fan, I did get a deeper appreciation once I understood, you know, how these things came to be. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was, it was pretty spectacular. Plus, you're getting access to secrets, and what kid doesn't love feeling like they're special? You know, to get my first uh, experience on the, tea, the my first memory of the tiki room. Um, was going backstage to see the reel-to-reel tapes that made the birds move and speak. And my father explaining that the the notches in the tape were what created the movements. And that's, it was just mind-blowing to my yeah. four-year-old mind. I, I just loved it. So, yeah. So that's, that's how we started. And then we mm-hmm. would stand online and he would also tell me the backstory that the Imagineers had come up with for the various attractions. And one of them um, was pirates. I remember standing. Uh, of course, the queue line looked very different back then. <laughs> hmm. uh, it's changed over the years. But um, I remember standing there looking up at the, you know, Spanish colonial building that was the the hall for Pirates of the Caribbean, the, the outer shelling of it. Right. And telling me the stories of various pirates and look out for this homage and look out for that. And did you know that there's only one real skeleton it's in the entire attraction and look out for that. It was just amazing. And um, him explaining robots and animatronics and the difference between the two and how Walt had 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 his face molded to be one of the pirates and look out for that pirate. It was just amazing. Wow. So <laughs> it took deep dives like from uh, basically your your experience of a young child is there's more th- beyond the surface everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and to really appreciate that anything as spectacular as what I was seeing was going to take work, that Mm. it didn't just magically appear that it was um, the heartfelt desires and wishes and passions and skill set of these incredible um, people that Walt had pulled together back in the early 50s. Well, even before that is as early as the 1940s to start creating all of this and. I think I took from it a, 
I'm thankful for the work ethic that I took from it, that if I want to achieve something, it's more than just wishing about it. It's really applying yourself to experimentation and failure and learning from your (laughs) mistakes and how to get better at it and not give up. I mean, to me, it served as the ultimate inspiration that it can, you can figure it out. It just may take a lot more work than the average bear may think. (laughs) Wow. I mean, those are great lessons to be instilled (laughs) at a very young age for sure. (laughs) Yeah, but so magical. I mean, what better way to learn those lessons than at Disneyland eating, you know, popcorn and munching on your favorite ice cream bars. Yeah. It's a lot more fun than most kids have to learn stuff. <laughs> That's for sure. It, it really was. It was. It was kind of um, an active, interactive schoolyard for me. And um, even even my my dad would do things like cover up my eyes and tell me to close my eyes as we walk from Main Street into Frontierland, and ask me if I felt anything different, if I noticed anything different, if I heard anything different. And so I became aware that as you transitioned, of course, the music would transition and you'd go from Main Street, USA, early turn of the century, plinkety, you know, piano music to old frontier music, classic 1950s version of right. Frontierland. <laughs> and, um, and, under, and the feet, you know, what you felt under the soles of your shoes changed intentionally. Mm-hmm. The very terrain that you walk on changes so that you experientially feel like you've gone back in time. So it, it was really, all of that was something I, I took with me. And um, and speaking of New Orleans Square and Pirates, then of course we made it over to the mansion, which my mother would not be thrilled to know that I was being brought on at the age of three or four. Wow. Given, that I, given that I was prone to nightmares and had an active imagination as a child. Um <laughs> And I remember uh, my my very first experience in the mansion was like many others, which was my father had to learn the hard way that I was not yet able to handle it because oh, the, didn't go well. Huh? <laughs> we were in the very entry of the mansion. I I still remember this: the experience of being in this closed, frightening, dark space with a giant to me as a four year old giant chandelier, and I remember screaming bloody murder. I was so scared. Uh, the minute I heard that organ music and the opening Paul Freeze, I just lost it. And my father had to carry me out and calm me down with an ice cream because I was just hysterical. That was my first experience at the beach. <laughs> did you actually go on the attraction or did you? Uh... No. Oh, no. Uh... I don't think we tried it again for a few years. But so I actively, I actively remember going through it at the age of six or seven. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. It's 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 funny to think <laughs> you know what, what ended up happening that that was the first experience. <laughs> it is ironic. <laughs> it is. And then at the age of 6 and 7 when I was old enough because the lines for the mansion back then of course it was a it was a if I'm remembering correctly it was either a D or an E ticket. It was one of the two, right? It was either a D ticket or an E ticket attraction pretty back sure when it was, pretty sure it was a d i, d- I definitely don't know from first-hand experience but i'm pretty sure yeah. it was a d so back then the the lines were very very long um they did not flow i don't think they had turnover with the elevators quite as much sorry excuse me with the stretching room i don't think the turnover was quite as active um so we would be standing online twisting and turning through the turnstile part that you hardly ever get to anymore except for nightmare before christmas version right but um i remember being at the side of the mansion and my father pointing up saying do you see way up there do you see those windows way up there that's that's a a cupola and i was like a what a cup and he was like no it's it's called a cupola or a cupola and it's italian for little little high room little enclosed space and i'd be like so what 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 is a cup? What what does it have to do with anything? And he'd say, well, that's where a very famous character used to look out at the sea waiting for her love to return. And do you see what's above it? And I'd be like, uh, a weather vane. And he'd say, yes. And do you see what shape the weather vane is in? A ship. Do you know why the weather vane is a ship? 
So this is how I learned the story of the sea captain and his bride. Wow. And um, my dad knew all of these stories because he was hanging out with the some of the original Imagineers and hearing about all the different versions. And back then, the story that I remember the most was that the bride was waiting, looking out at sea, which the stand-in, of course, was Rivers of America. But in theory, you know, if that beautiful uh, Garden District mansion was facing out over the sea, mm-hmm. it would spot... She was waiting for her long-lost love to return. And um, there was some tragic misunderstanding, very Romeo and Juliet, where she thought he was dead. So she takes her own life. Uh, The story I heard was that she took it by um, pining away of a broken heart. But there's different versions, of course, you know, hurling herself from the window or hanging her from the attic. And then he returns and finds her dead. And then he hangs himself. That's the story I remember most was that version. Pretty gruesome tale for a six-year-old. Right? (laughs) Like I joked with you, my mother would have been thrilled to know that this is how I was being entertained on weekends. Yeah. Um, and, uh, And what I remember most, by the way, of the mansion to, to my childhood memory, I don't remember anything other than the coffin in the atrium because that was the most gothic and the most relate, the most human realistic part of the mansion in a sense was that to me, it looked very real. And you heard someone screaming from the coffin, let me out of here, let me out. And to me, that was just terrifying. So that stuck with me forever as my first memory of the mansion. Yeah, I'd I imagine don't, that probably freaked out a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah. And the only other early memory I have of the mansion was that, cause I would, I would go, by the way, go through it with my eyes, mostly closed. <laughs> um, my, my dad was always trying to get me to look and I, I wouldn't open up my eyes. And by the way, that's a much scarier way to enjoy the man. You should try it sometime going through with your eyes completely closed because the audio effects are so brilliant and you hear them so much more clearly when your eyes are closed, of course, because you're not that's the only sense you're really activating. Would you be um, surprised to know that I've ridden the entire tractor with my eyes closed there you go. <laughs> just for that reason? Just there you to go. take in all the audio. Yep. <laughs> it's really amazing. And it, and what your imagination conjures is so much scarier than the real thing that no wonder I was terrified of the mansion so much as a kid because <laughs> I was not daring to open up my eyes. But I, I do remember excuse me, I do remember my dad pointing out the raven and mm. telling me that it was the the voice that we heard at the beginning of the ride, that it was the incarnation of the voice that we heard at the beginning of the ride, which of course is the ghost host. host. And so that I also carried with me was that every time that you saw the raven, it was the ghost host checking in on you through the throughout the experience. Yeah, that's that's interesting how that turned out <laughs> because it's it's so prominently displayed all throughout the attraction, but there's not a, a real connection. It's just the you have to know basically, like you have to be told, oh, that's that was supposed to be the narrator of the attraction. Yeah, yeah, and of course, for those, I'm sure a lot of your follow your fans and your friends know this, but of course, that was all a tie. That was an homage to Edgar Allan Poe. Of course. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And as was the coffin, of course. And um, those are the parts of the mansion that I love the most, the ones that are the strongest Gothic ties. Uh, I I love all of it, but if someone asked me personally, what's your favorite elements of the mansion, it's definitely the Raven and the coffin. Yeah. There's, there's a little bit of creepiness for everybody inside there. (laughs) Yep. Um, and the swirling dancers, the ghostly dancers. And by the way, I'm just going to I'm going to throw this out. And I know it's taken us way off our timeline because we have to get back to uh, my first experiences as an adult with Disney. But for the record, um, I got so orgasmically happy and excited when I saw the opening of the live action version. If only <laughs> the whole rest of the movie had lived up to the first five minutes of the uh live action mm. version. 
yeah, yeah, it's very. I'd just say it's pretty divisive. Uh, it's pretty pretty split down the middle. I mean, there's a lot of people that really love the movie, but, but universally, I think we all can appreciate its well, it, it's it's aesthetic. <laughs> its aesthetic is, is beautiful. <laughs> so they're wrong. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. Like I said, another deep conversation. But I think there's a whole generation of kids that that was their introduction to the mansion because they didn't live near a uh, you know uh, Disney Park. Okay. From my research, as uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to forgive them that, but <laughs> I I got you. Okay. But so, anyhow, <laughs> just to kind of speed up the timeline so that we get to what you know the heart of the matter. <laughs> of what everybody wants to hear about. So my first experiences as an adult with Disney uh, were, of course, as a cast member and fighting like heck to uh, get to get to do that because we didn't live anywhere close to Orange County. I lived up in L.A. proper, West Los Angeles at the time. And I had just just graduated high school, was just going into my first semester at UC Berkeley up in San Francisco in Berkeley. And that summer, I had, I didn't tell my mom, but I had applied because there had been a recruiter up at Berkeley who was actually looking for cast members up at UC Berkeley, which is, hmm. they don't do that anymore. But that year they were sending the person who was in charge of uh, recruitment to Stanford, to Berkeley, um, a couple of other campuses just to try to get different cultures into working at the park than just Orange County. So, yeah, very interesting. And his name was Joel. I, I remember him well. And I remember that when I walked in, they had Mickey Mouse balloons, and I I lost it. I was so happy. <laughs> um, and uh, he couldn't believe that he'd found, you know, a potential future cast member whose dad had worked with Imagineering. Oh, so yeah. he. Jackpot, right? He was like, do you want to be a tour guide? Do you consider being, you know, wearing the plaid and doing the tour guide? And interestingly enough, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to work in attraction. I really wanted to be, da 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 da. Can you guess what I really wanted to be? I'm going to take a wild guess and say Haunted Mansion Maid. Nope. Oh, wrong guess. (laughs) Not by a long shot. (laughs) My favorite attractions as a kid were the canoes and jungle cruise jungle cruise skipper. Wow. That's it. Is, was that it? <laughs> and I of course had a big mouth even back then. And I loved storytelling and I loved narration and I so wanted to be a jungle cruise skipper. And one of my best friends applied with me. We went through the cast member training together. And back then you would go to Mickey mouse university upstairs, second floor, second or third floor, off of Harbor Boulevard. That's where we would enter. It was the old employee entrance off of Harbor Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And uh, his name was Steve, and he was one of my best friends at UC Berkeley. We'd both gotten in together. And he got Jungle Cruise Skipper, and he didn't want it. And I was so envious. Mm. And I got, I got Storybook Land. That was my consolation prize. Well, she wants to do narration, so we'll, give her, we'll, we'll make her a cheerleader at Storybook Land. Wow. <laughs> not quite as fun as uh, Jungle Cruise Skipper. No, not shooting guns at hippos. I wanted to do that so badly. Um, not to shoot the hippo, just to shoot the gun off and be sarcastic. But anyway, one day, maybe I'll, I'll have the honor of getting to take that over. <laughs> one day I'll get it. I'll be honorary skipper, maybe one day. But in the meantime, I got... That was my first official voiceover job was Storybook Land. Wow. Yep. Which is, I, I'd say I, I, I've been on there at some point not too long ago. And it's, it's still a lot of, it's still got to bring a lot, bring a lot of personality to the, you know, to the, to the ride. <laughs> yes. But you know what? I got in trouble a lot because I would share all kinds of other details and they were like, no, you got to, you know, your spiels have to be quicker. They have to be simpler. Uh. But my boats loved them. They loved it when I went into the backstory of how the statue, you know, made it into Kensington Gardens and <laughs> of Peter Pan and the backstory of Three Little Pigs and that it stood for. I got into all kinds of Disney history, but I would get in trouble because I was maverick. I was going off the script. Yeah, that's not something that's uh, <laughs> that they like. <laughs> not encouraged. Not I was encouraged. mischievous. 
Well, obviously you cannot be contained and you couldn't keep that position um, or you didn't want uh, – I think mean, this was just a summer job or, or what? Like how did you uh, transition out of being a cast member? Seasonal. So, yeah, I did it for that one glorious golden summer, uh, dated the saxophone player for the All-American College Band back then, Jeffrey, wherever you are, my so, first summer love. Oh. Um, and uh, and then uh, I came back for that winter. And fickle person that I am, I had a different boyfriend by that point. So God knows what happened to poor Jeffrey. But <laughs> for that winter, I worked uh, Christmas and, and New Year's Eve, which was really magical. That was really cool. Uh, he was on Star Tours. I was still on Storybook Land. And I remember standing. We were still in our costumes, which I'm sure we were, or excuse me, our wardrobe. We were not supposed to be. Um, but I remember us standing in front of the castle holding hands. Me and my little storybook land and him and his. <laughs> it's a little contrast. <laughs> but um, very sweet and innocent. And then, yeah, and then that was it. Went on to uh, other summer jobs after that. But it was really magical. And canoe races. Oh, my goodness. Uh, wow. You know, showing up at 4.30 in the morning to do canoe races around Tom Sawyer Island was so cool. That I'm, I'm exhausted just hearing that. <laughs> I can't imagine right. how tough that was. Yeah, and then you'd go, you'd you'd basically finish by seven. You'd go shower, and then you'd show up and do you know double shift for the full day. God knows where you get your energy when you're. Yeah, that's a twenty two. I don't know. That's a twenty something kind of energy level for sure. Or no, I was nineteen or nineteen or twenty. Yeah, because oh, wow. it was freshman year, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. That was pretty special. And then from there, my next introduction to Disney was doing um, records, recording storybook land-like record narration for Walt Disney Records, which I just released. Actually, there was a fun trend a couple of weeks ago called Tell a Fairy Tale Day. Hmm. It was one of those one of those hashtags that trends sure. for like one day. Yeah. <laughs> and I I released for everybody my story my storytelling real as a voice actor with all of my awesome uh all of the cool little snippets of different disney records narrations that i did and that was a dream come true because that's how i first learned about disney was through the little golden records that i used to play and read out loud from when i was a kid the little 78 records with the read-alongs oh yeah that, probably same for me too <laughs> so yeah <laughs> Yeah, when Tinkerbell rings her little bell, turn, turn the, the page. page. Yep. <laughs> then I got the person doing that, so that was pretty sweet. And then, uh, and then right around there was around the time that I became friendly with um, the casting director at Imagineering, who was using me for Scratch for different things. Um, scratch is when you re- pre-record. Way at the beginning stages when they're not sure what the final script will be, what the final voice will be. A lot of times that maybe they want a celebrity, but they're not going to bring in the celebrity for the early stages. That's called Scratch. And um, the very first the very first thing that I did for Disney, huh, this is embarrassing. There was a attraction that probably lasted a heartbeat called Superstar Limo. <laughs> yeah, I think most Disney fans are familiar with that one for for its uh its reputation, I guess. Yeah. So, the very first iteration of the Superstar Limo was a female limo driver who was the the reference point was uh Lisa Phoebe from Friends, Lisa Kudrow's character. Um she was going to be very over the top valley girl. Mhm. Oh my God, this is so exciting. I get to take you on like a limousine to see all the, like the celebrities. Um, <laughs> That's pretty good I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that was the first choice of a limousine voice. Of course that, that got replaced by a male voice and then, and then the attraction, I never even got to see the attraction. It, it was in and out so quickly that, uh, I've seen a video of it. <laughs> Someone shot an awful, you know, VHS. Yeah quality version of it but that was my very first (laughs) and um and then i got to do sinbad's voyage is that what it's called sinbad sinbad's voyage for is it uh tokyo yeah disney seas 
Yeah, yeah, I think that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the name of it. Yeah. Um, and then my very first official, like, classic Disney attraction, and this is getting in deep to all kinds of hi- hidden history, but my very first real attraction that was classic that I got to be part of was. I, don't, I couldn't even guess. <laughs> yes. Great moments with Mr. Lincoln. <laughs> I would not have guessed that. Right? <laughs> how, how, where's your voice in that attraction? Well, for about, I want to say two years, there was a binaural version. Mm-hmm. Remember where they were experimenting with bi- binaural sound wearing those special yeah. phones? So for that version, I was part of the loop group where you would I was one of the voices that you heard in the binaural oh. town yeah and what was really exciting about that experience although that was exciting in and of itself to know that I was going to be in great moments with Mr. Lincoln because of course that was Walt's passion passion project and and of course the beginning of animatronics and all that which I knew <laughs> since I've been taught all that as a as a 4-year-old but it was because in the loop group there was about six of us there was four men and two women i was i was the young gal and in that group was pete renaday whoa i got got introduced to pete renaday i dropped to my knees and genuflected i was so (laughs) beside myself that i was going to be recording with henry i could not believe it and the voice of the ghost host on haunted mansion record (laughs) That too, but I didn't know that. <laughs> I just knew that he was, I had known that he was Henry. And um, that was, he was so sweet and so lovely. Of course he is. And he was so wonderful. And he gave me a hug. He said, well, here, give me a hug. And uh, that was amazing. So I was so nervous and excited. I don't even remember the rest of the recording session other than that I was standing next to Pete Renaday. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well- and from there, I then got a call. Would I please come in to scratch something for a new version of an attraction that was already in Florida? And had I heard of it, it was sort of an homage to Twilight Zone. And interestingly enough, now remember, this is the early 2000s mm-hmm. uh, that, that this happened. This was in 2002 that I got this phone call. Remember, the world was not completely connected nonstop to the Internet back then. Or, you know, it's hard to believe that. But there was a time when not everything was up on the Internet and you couldn't just Google. Google didn't even exist back then, I don't think. Uh, I think we we had Google by then. We didn't have YouTube then, though. I can tell you that. (laughs) Well, all I know is that when I first heard of it, it was the first time I'd heard of it. Because I didn't really know what was going on at Disney World. I just cared about my park, which was (laughs) And I, I had never really had a close association with anybody. Everybody I knew worked at Disneyland or Disney Studios. So I didn't hear about other attractions. And I think in that weird way, when it's your park, it's your park, and you don't really care what the other park is up to back then. <laughs> there was only two parks back then, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the one in the Tokyo one was just uh, getting underway. I think towards the, when was that? The late 90s, early 2000s that that all started to kick off? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm uh, sorry. Euro <laughs> Disney, I'm sorry. Euro Disney opened in the late 90s, correct? Um, I'm going to go with 92 f- for Not Euro two. Disney. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, the, the failure of it killed a lot of things that were planned that I wished came to be. Oh, That's you're, why. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That's right. Because it was Euro, it was, it, that's right, that's right, that's right. It was Euro Disney first, and then they had to rejigger a lot of things. You're absolutely right. Um, and I, oh, and I have a funny story about the translation that went into Pirates for that, because um, I actually worked with somebody who was working on the Blue Sky concepts for how to translate famous uh, Disneyland attractions for the European sensibility. Mm, interesting. And they were... They were having so much trouble with the Pirates of the Caribbean because, of course, all of those slang words, all those slangisms of pirates weren't translating in the French language. There was no translation to get across that sexy, 
musty pirate piratey <laughs> you know slang yeah um they didn't have any equivalent of that in the french culture and um the most famous line of all what's the famous slogan for pirates of the caribbean that we see on the posters come on come on Dead men tell no tales there you go <laughs> closest that they could get was people who are dead don't talk <laughs> um so that's they had a lot of trouble to translate the culture of pirates correctly so that it would have the same cool sexy awesome flavor for the french for the european culture yeah that's funny that stuff you know don't really think about until you have to get think about it do it yeah yeah think about it you have to go and do it (laughs) you're just like oh (laughs) yeah and and another thing that was interesting was that to europe now this is again we're talking we're talking way back then and i remember this was when i was getting my first i was at my first job in hollywood as an agent at william morris so i i was not yet on the voice acting side so i was hearing about this from someone who was working at disney at the time that the other thing that was so weird about that attraction is that pirates up until Euro Disney slash Disneyland Paris, pirates were not fun scoundrels. They were not adorable or lovable. You know, kids for Halloween, when I was a kid, were dressing up as pirates all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, it was cute, right? A little parrot on your shoulder. And that was all because of Disney making them lovable but to europe europeans pirates were not lovable they were bad and not in a good way right and (laughs) they were not lovable and they had a lot of trouble selling the european culture on whether or not this attraction stayed because it did not they did not have the same nostalgic feeling about pirates that we did in america with treasure island and tom sawyer tom sawyer and all of that it was a very different culture so anyway off of that, because that's way too intellectual and not at all what we're supposed to be talking about. Uh, let's let's shift back gears to uh, your Tower of Terror. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> and so the first time that uh, the cast and director mentioned this to me, I remember saying out loud to him, really? There's a thing at Walt Disney World called Tower of Terror? That doesn't even sound like a Disney attraction. Because <laughs> it doesn't. You know, yeah. taking context, is like that sounds more like something for Magic Mountain. Or Knott's Berry Farm. It didn't sound like a Disney thing. And um, and he was trying to describe it to me that it was part dark ride, part free fall, part roller coaster. I, I couldn't conceptualize in a million years what this was. And, of course, like you said, there was no YouTube. So I couldn't, couldn't find a video of it. And so I was just left to my imagination. And um, interestingly enough, what I pictured was very similar to what the inside of the tower the hotel did look like um and we went in and he said do you remember the twilight zone episode where there's a little girl and she gets lost in the fourth or fifth dimension and i was like oh yeah yeah i think it was called little girl lost or something like that and he said yes well we want you to to just recreate that girl's voice and so um that's what we did for the scratch session i didn't know what it was for they don't tell you what it's for Mm. Specifically, you just do what you're asked, and I was thrilled to do it. And um, then, remember, I got a call from my agent a few months later, or could have been as far far forward as you know nine months later, that the contract came through, and that I I was now going to be the voice of that, meaning that the scratch they decided to use the, the actual scratch session. So um, I didn't have to go back to record it. They just used what I had recorded in the scratch session. And that became the little girl in the wall that you would hear in the chalk circle right before the elevators. Yeah, in the boiler room. It's very cool. I remember the first time that I noticed that because it's not something that you really notice every time you go through there. <laughs> yeah, and, and it would rise and fall in volume too. Mm-hmm. It would cycle through and then you would hear it in, you would hear it downstairs too but you didn't even it had less association because it was just coming on top of generator sounds and other sounds you didn't really know what the heck it was just like a go it would sound like a ghost in the machine sort of a thing yeah that's pretty much what i thought it was until um you know i think you're the one that first told me what it was the last time we spoke to be honest because <laughs> i pretty much just thought it was a ghost sound yeah 
Well, a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of fans did figure it out because a lot. Of, there were a lot of Twilight Zone aficionados who who recognized the the chalk circle and would stand and lean their ear against the wall, listening for it. Um, so yeah, that was that. And then they lifted. Then the voice ended up in in the other Twilight Zones eventually. Um, so that that was cool. And and then I got taken to the actual cast. Uh, what would you call it? Preview. Mm-hmm. The the cast member it, previews, yeah. It wasn't cast member. I'm sorry. It was everybody who worked for the studios. It was like the studio preview. Oh, okay. And so I remember, and I remember going and seeing it live for the first time, and I was like, "Hell no, I'm not going on that. There's no way you're getting me on that." <laughs> and and him saying, "Oh, come on, you got it, you got to hear your voice." I was like, "I'll stand online and I'll listen for my voice, but I'm not going on it." And that was literally the decision I made was that I was going to just enjoy the, you know, the pre-show because I knew the actor who'd done the the voice match for Rod Serling, and I'd, I'd heard about the technology, you know, how exciting it was that they'd splice that together. Mm-hmm. And basically, my my determination was I was going to take the chicken exit, you know, at after we were done going through the queue line and he dragged me, he was like, come on, you can't chicken out. And everybody around me was like, come on, you got to go. It's so great. It's not that scary. And, um, I rode that with my eyes shut the entire time. And I was terrified. I was terrified. (laughs) Um, There's a picture of me and you, you can, I look like I'm going to lose it at any moment. And I was crying when we got off. Both that I'd, sur- I was crying out of happiness that I survived <laughs> and relief, and and I was genuinely shaken up. It was, it, it was incredible. And then of course I wanted to write it again twenty minutes later. So well, it's such a unique feeling, falling faster than gravity, that you know your brain doesn't know how to process it. <laughs> it's it was pretty real, and the sound effects, you know, the grinding of the elevator, you know, whipping you up and down, and it being sort of off kilter. I thought it was brilliant. I I uh, was very glad, and of course, it's not nearly. Everybody knows this, so I'm you know, thank you, Captain Obvious, but it's not a free fall. It's not like what it looks like from the outside, where you're falling all those stories. It's you fall, you know, maybe one or two, and then you lift back up, and then you fall another, you know, half. And right. So, yeah. There you go, and oh, that's mm. all that I was lucky enough to do for Disney. So it's been such an honor, James. I uh, feel like we're forgetting something. <laughs> I don't think so. Was Tower of Terror was uh, fun to be a part of, and it's been such an honor being uh, associated with Creepy Kingdom. And <laughs> no, no, I, I think there's one other thing that you did. Um, let me go to your IMDb uh, really quick and, <laughs> and double check. What? What is, what is this? Black Widow Bride role? <laughs> oh, of course. And then there was the time. <laughs> that one time. <laughs> that one time. But we're going to save that, are we not? Yep. Um, there's our uh, there's our cliffhanger here. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, on our next uh, part of our chat, we're gonna we're gonna learn about how you became the bride, and you have a little um, something you you obtain some information while becoming the bride that you haven't shared anywhere publicly ever Ever. that will be an exclusive to creepy kingdom and foolish mortals i know you'd asked me to make sure that i i reminded for social media if anybody wants to follow along for all my upcoming adventures with disney and marvel uh both in voiceover as well as my upcoming halloween and horror conventions which Hopefully, we'll still be going on end of this year, but they can follow along. Um, yeah, on my Twitter, it's just my name at Cat Cressida, Cat with a K, Cressida with a C. Same on Instagram at Cat Cressida, and on Facebook, it's slightly different. It's got a dot in the middle of my first name and last name. And of course, as you know, every morning, every morning on Twitter, I always do deep Disney history and uh, Disney uh, trivia, all kinds of unusual things about the parks, and a lot of. Uh, vintage long lost footage that people have not seen of the park so would love if any of your uh, creepy kingdomers wishes to join and follow along and uh 
I guess I'll just leave you with hurry back. This podcast has been a production of the Creepy Kingdom Podcast Network. Executive produced by James H. Carter II and Ryan Grulick. Visit creepykingdom.com to get access to all of our articles, videos, and podcasts. Join our Patreon for exclusive content. Patreon.com slash creepykingdom. Until next time, this is Hannah reminding you to keep it creepy. (laughs) 